So with time moving faster than we thought, um, this would be a good time now for you to uh, go and get your uh, questions, and uh, or give your questions, and uh, of course get your answers. So if um, you'd like to do that, um, we'll uh, we'll get going. We're just a bit over the time, maybe 25 minutes. So uh, don't see anyone coming. No. Ah, the irreplaceable Knut Peterson. <laughs> yeah, my name is uh, Knut Peterson, and uh, thanks for your presentation, Barry. My question is uh, about funding. Um, one way to avoid the uh, pressures of prices of oil would be to bring the uh, taxation back to the cities of municipalities. Uh, I gather you're not in favor of that. I think one of the uh, challenges that would be faced, as I mentioned, uh, with, the, with the mill rate for the education property tax having been decreased, um, this has been happening at a time when I think the, the municipalities have been asked to do more and more. And so this has provided them some room for increasing the municipal tax or the municipal portion of the tax in order to uh, pr provide the services that we all want as, uh, as citizens of our community. Um, as I mentioned in my um, delivery, that I, I really think that horse is out of the barn because the, the reality would be that it would take a, a very, very significant increase in the municipal uh, property tax for education in order to get back to the days where that paid for a substantial share or a majority share of the education. My name is Van Christou, and I'd like to uh, express my personal thanks, and I'm sure on, on behalf of everybody here, Barry, to a, a very uh, enthusiastic and positive uh, uh, delivery on, on uh, probably the most important, in my opinion, the most important thing in our society is our educational process. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, I was glad in your delivery to notice that you included the in, in education. I forget the the, uh, the terminology you used, but the rela relationship of teaching children to look after themselves in pre preventive medicine uh, within the schools, and uh, at a time when. The main fight that we're going to have in the future is with the huge costs of, of medicine in our society. Uh, there isn't a better way to tackle it, in my opinion, than that, than to educate people to look after themselves. So I really commend you on having taken that, and I hope that you continue uh, in that vein. My question to you is, can you make any further comments on that particular part of, of, of our societal problem? I'd be pleased to. Um, the whole area of wellness uh, for students, uh, there's, there's two aspects of it. Obviously, one is the nutritional choices uh, and, the, and the food we eat. Uh, we truly believe that education is a, an absolute essential for young people and, and all people, but really for young people to understand um, you know, that the food that they put in their bodies, the uh, activity or lack of activity, will have long-lasting impact. Uh, the nutritional choices policy that our, our board passed a couple of years ago has been working on a system of, of educating, uh, informing, and it has really been bought into. Uh, I'll give you one classic example. I guess uh, we, you know, we don't have the, you know, the candy machines in the schools, and we don't have the pop machines in the schools any longer. 
Uh, we have nutritional drinks or nutritional uh, things that the cafeterias uh, will provide. You know, I mean, quite frankly, when I went to high school, if if someone said, you know, there's salad available for you at the cafeteria, I mean, you would have just laughed at it. But now, I mean, young people are making those choices. And, and, and the example I'll use is this. Fewer and fewer people are smoking, you know, and, few, you know, there's still some people that smoke, but fewer and fewer people. In fact, I think I read last year that the fewest number of people are smoking in recent history. But that's, I think, as a result of ongoing education. People understand what it does if you do smoke, and so they're consciously making that choice. Um, our trustee, our board chair, Gary Bartlett, we had a meeting uh, with, uh, uh, with Brian Mason from the New Democrat Party, and he made the point of saying, if we simply mandated that you're not going to have pop machines, you're not going to have chocolate bar machines in the schools, particularly at the high school. I mean, most of our schools are near a 7-Eleven or a convenience store. I mean, so I'll just walk over there and spend my money over there. But it, in a combination of uh, educating the young people and then providing alternative healthy choices has worked very well to the extent that a school council from uh, Lethbridge Collegiate Institute, LCI, approached um, our district. We have been able, through a grant, to hire a healthy um, health, health coach in our district to work with schools. And they looked, the, the parents that were going to run the concessions at a basketball tournament said, you know, we want to offer healthy food choices for the, for the people that are going to come to the concession. And so we were able to support that and provide them. And the reality is that if you provide good, healthy choices at a reasonable price, many people will choose that, and that will continue on. So thank you for the question. Mr. Sherman. Yeah, my name is Rod Sherman. I'm an emergency physician for 20 years in the inner city in Edmonton and a former junior health minister and now liberal leader. Barry, I want to thank you for your presentation, and uh, it's fantastic work that you're doing here. We... If we actually did this in the whole province, in fact, you should be the health, uh, the education minister to educate the children. You are doing what needs to be done. Uh, uh, Please give, I, uh, give Barry a round of applause. That's fantastic. Now, Barry, um, I'll tell you, the challenges that governments, provincial governments face is one, the income stream is so volatile, up and down, based on resource revenues. Then in the expenditure side... The problem for you in education not only is the government's income stream based on oil or gas, it's actually health care. Because health care is already eating your breakfast and it's eating your lunch and for every other ministry. And yet we have an unhealthy population. I'd like to ask you two questions. One, well, first of all, you're already doing it on the prevention side. But to take it further, what are your thoughts? We used to have school nurses but what are your thoughts on embedding the healthcare team, the prevention side, from nurse practitioners to nurses to mental health counselors, nutrition uh, counselors, um, physical activity counselors into the school system and social workers and school resource officers to prevent the problem from ending up in hospital or in the prison system? Because that's where all the expenses are on the bad side and nothing gets fixed. Mental health is also a big problem. 60,000 kids are seeking mental health services. Suicide rate, suicide is number one cause of death. A lot of the young people that are getting bullied, how do you deal with the bullying? So one question is on the prevention side, and second question on the bullying side. How do you deal with the bullying in Lethbridge, and how should policymakers deal with bullying? Okay. Well, I think in terms of the prevention, I would, I would concur with one thing, that um, as schools... Um, the reason that public health nurses 
come to schools to vaccinate children, you know, at a certain, you know, every child in grade three will receive a certain vaccination. It just, quite frankly, it makes sense. I mean, when the students are in the school, why would you have, you know, 300 students in a, in a grade being asked to go somewhere else to get a vaccination when you can bring one or two nurses in and, and accomplish it much more efficiently? I am a, a, an absolute proponent of the idea that, you know, there's a great benefit to bringing resources into the building that we call schools. And whether it be a, a, a nurse, a public health nurse, whether it be a uh, a counselor in terms of uh, mental health issues. And to a certain extent, we're fortunate in Lethbridge that we do have uh, you know, some of that available in our schools. And so um, I think that even as we design new schools, it's important that this type of um, opportunity is provided for. Uh, you know, whether it, even uh, we have in Park Meadows Elementary School, we have a parent center. And so, again, this is a resource, a, it's a community resource that provides support for parents of, of young children, and it's based in the school. Why is it in the school? Well, it makes sense. That's where, the, that's where the parents are coming. They're coming there on a daily basis to bring their children to school. And so from my, from my perspective, I think that's a real key, and it would be a positive. In terms of the bullying, uh, I'm a former principal. I, I was a principal of a school, a number of schools, but... And clearly, I think one of the things that has to be established um, is, number one, that it's not acceptable, and number two, there has to be open and clear dialogue between the school community, whether it be the parents and the teacher, the parents and the administrator. And you know, my comment as an administrator was, if I'm aware of bullying, then I can address it. But if I'm not aware of it, then I have a hard time addressing it. And so, you know, as professionals, we encourage our staff to sort of have their ears to the ground and, and be aware. You know, look for that child that seems to be ostracized. Look for that child that's by themselves, him or herself. Look for the child that seems to be kind of, uh, you know, down for a while and, and engage them in the conversation because it's not, you know, we can't just sort of wait and say, well, if they come to us, we'll deal with it. I think in terms of policymakers, um, the one thing that I have a bit of trepidation is that the term bullying can, can be overused to a certain extent. I mean, it is not right for any individual to be put down, whether because of race or because of sex or, or any of the other aspects of our lives. But I think that there's also a need to be recognize the fact that, you know, if I bump into someone in the hallway, in a crowded hallway, you know, I don't want to be called a bully just simply because I accidentally bumped into that. And I think that it's important, and I, I know as a school official that was one of my challenges, was to ensure that I was able to come to grips with the idea that, um, you know, if there is an accusation, we investigated it clearly. And in some cases, there needed to be changes in, in behavior by both parties. Um, you know, there need, obviously if someone is, is being aggressive, then we need to ensure that doesn't happen. But in some cases, the individual making the accusation had to understand that some of their actions were causing the other person to, you know, to become very annoyed and very angry. And so by educating them, we're able to show that you know, they can eliminate that uh, process in the future. Hi, Barry. Thanks for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz. Uh, I would like your reaction to what's going on in Calgary right now where the public school board is voting on a change of policy where anything over $500,000 in, in expenditures will not be dealt with by the school board, but by administration. What do you think of that? 
Well, I, I want to be very careful because I don't know the details of that, and I, I, I want to share with you that the, the context of the Calgary Board's budget and our budget are, are very, very much different. Our, our budget, I mentioned, is around 90 to $94 million. I know that last year the Calgary Board's budget was over a billion dollars. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a massive operation. Um, I know that within our um, jurisdiction, you know, we, we wouldn't have limits, but there are limits in which the board sort of empowers administration. It's not anywhere near that number. But the, there, as time goes on, the value of, uh, you know, $50,000 or $100,000, and so there are times when, um, you know, the, if a contract needs to be done, if a, you know, if a roof, for example, is leaking, there needs to be empowerment of, of board officials, of administration, sorry, to, to go ahead and get that done without going through, let's say, a tender process. Um, I don't know the details other than the headline news of, you know, that this was going to be looked at. Um, I, I think that the key for me is that at the local level, that's where that decision needs to be made. Um, I would say that if, uh, if our board, and Brooke is here, if our board decided that this was something they wanted to do, then it would be up to the public to let them know at the next election. If that, was that a good idea or was that a bad idea? With the Calgary board, they've obviously looked at it and investigated. They felt that this is a, a decision they'd like to move forward with. Um, in the end, if it's something that is not accepted by the community, then they'll probably hear about it at, you know, in a year and a half from now. So, My name is Frank Toth, Barry, and it's a pleasure to see you. I want to make two quick statements. First of all, bless you for playing O Canada to start this official meeting. Every business meeting should be started with, a, with O Canada. Secondly, I want to thank you for making the offer of trying to put the historic existence, presence of the, of the miners in this area, 109 miles, you have agreed to try to instill it into the school pro pro program somewhere down the line. I thank you very much for that. And I enjoyed my conversations with you over time. Uh, and the assessor of Lethbridge, the chief assessor, between the two of you, I've researched and found that uh, number one underlying problem of our taxation is that the linear corporations, companies in each community and city are literally exempt from paying tax, all right? The linear corporation, oil companies, store chains, radio stations, what have you, are practically exempt. If you want to check that out with your local assessor, it'll knock your head off. You don't believe it. Secondly, the same as federally now, the big boys got the big tax break, okay? But, but uh, that's the un underlying problems. Now, again, I, I would say that uh, when linear corporations, the big boys with the big money don't, don't contribute to their community, that's the reason. And the fact that uh, Article 601 with the NAFTA agreement between Edmonton, Ottawa, and Washington says that there will absolutely be no, no change in environmental laws and no change in price. I repeat, there will be no change in price sales of oil to the United States in this contract. Did we get a question? Uh, that's, that's the question. 
Okay. Or how, 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 would, uh, how, how could we instill this, all this knowledge and research to school, school kids, especially high school kids, to research and see what, 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 we're, what's, what our problem is? Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Frank, I appreciate it, and I certainly have appreciated the opportunity to meet with you uh, and have these discussions uh, previously. I, I think one of the things I, I, um, that will maybe be uh, an advantage, the curriculum in Alberta, I mentioned that Alberta has a, an exceptional reputation across the world in terms of education. The curriculum is developed through working with government but also working with teachers. But one of the, I guess, criticisms there has been of the curriculum of, of Alberta is that there are simply too many things within each of the subjects and each of the grades. And one of the uh, challenges that is being proposed, or one of the changes that is being proposed, is that maybe the curriculum should have fewer things in it and allow the students to go into more depth. And so something along those lines, for example, within a social studies class, if you weren't responsible for you know, 127 different items that you have to get across, but you had fewer, you would allow students to do uh, more thought and uh, independent study and, and then report back to their students. So that would be an example, I think, of how, you know, that might pique the interest of a group of students, and they say, okay, I want to research it more. Uh, we understand that we need, in order for our students to maintain their edge in the world, they need to be critical thinkers. They need to, you know, they... they you can pick up any BlackBerry, you can pick up any computer, you can pick up any laptop, and you can find any fact in the world. You know, I mean, when I went to school, it used to be cool if you could memorize all the state capitals, all the provincial capitals, all the leaders of the different countries. You don't need to memorize that anymore because you can just find it in an instant. You need to be able to think through problems. You need to be able to anticipate what the issues are and then know how to go about finding that information. My name is Gordon Campbell. Uh, thank you for a most uh, eloquent presentation. Thank you. I want to ask you a question about ethics, political ethics. Uh, you have probably read as I have and been shocked as I have. Sorry. You have probably read and been shocked as I have that uh, certain organizations in our community, funded in part or whole by taxation, have over the years uh, slyly contributed a sum of money to the political operations of the Conservative Party. Uh, this is a flagrant case of fraud, I would think. And I'm asking you, whether you have any, any indication whatsoever that in the past or even now, some way or otherwise, have contributions been made to the political organization of any party through public taxation? Right. Um, excellent question. It certainly is um, something. Um, our, I, I can say certainly during my time as superintendent, there have not been any uh, contributions as such to any political party. Um, I do know that our trustees have um, attended uh, and, you know, they've attended um, not only for the governing party but for when leaders come from all of the parties because they felt it's important to hear the messages. Um, I do know that uh, when it became very apparent in, the, in recent years that attending such uh, banquets, etc., uh, could not be uh, considered part of a trustee remuneration. So the trustees that attend do pay out of their own pocket. Uh, in fact, when it became 
uh, when it was brought to the attention of our board uh, that this, you know, this was inappropriate, uh, that year that it was brought to our attention, the trustees that had gone to a banquet, uh, in fact, reimbursed uh, the, the funds to the district because they, you know, it was brought to their attention that it's not appropriate. But I can also say for, with certainty that there's never been any type of sort of donation or, or contribution to any of the political parties from our district. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barry. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. And um, I've noticed, uh, perhaps you don't know, I worked as a school psychologist for 16 years with uh, Palliser Regional Schools, and uh, I've retired from them two years ago. So this boom and bust in the fall has been going on for years, for decades, actually. It has. And uh, often school districts won't, won't even know how much money they're going to have until October. Um, I'm wondering what... How much did it actually cost your school division to lose the money, have to fire the teachers that you had on staff, get rid of the, you said, 25 full-time equivalents and then 30 full-time equivalents of support staff? And then when the $107 million was uh, given to the schools, and I assume a portion of that, to, to your division, how much money did it cost then to sort of reconfigure your school system, because it seems to me once you've got something in place, you have to change it, and then you have to change it again. You're never back to the place where you were at the beginning. Well, I think it would be hard to pinpoint a cost. I mean, obviously, when the money was reinstated in October, we were able to address it in different ways. The, the real, I mean, the real trauma occurred in the spring when we had, uh, by the nature of collective agreements, uh, when you have to reduce staff, typically it are the people who are beginning, you know, so it was beginning teachers in their first year on a uh, probationary contract. Um, our director, our um, associate superintendent of human resources, some of you might know, uh, Tim Rawlingson, uh, who retired last spring, uh, I, I mean, it, it just ate at him because, I mean, he had, you know, these young young people that were doing, you know, if you have an individual who's not necessarily doing a good job and you have to tell them that, you know, that they're not going to be continued, uh, I mean, that's tough enough as it is. But when you have people that are doing a good job, doing everything that you've asked for them, and you have to tell them that, you know, there just simply isn't the money to continue their position. So that was a very, very difficult time. When it came in the fall when the money was reinstated, it really varied from sort of level to level. For example, it was not feasible at the high schools to sort of bring in a teacher, you know, in the middle of a semester. And so most of the high schools have sort of postponed hiring a, an individual, you know, and so we are going to add some staff starting on February 1st, you know, at the high school levels. At the elementary levels, what we were able to do is if we had some larger class sizes, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, break them apart. Uh, maybe not necessarily for the full day, but um, uh, one example would be if you have a school where you have a combination of grade three and grade four students, uh, you might have 24, 25, 26 students in that class. By being provided some additional funding, the school said, we're going to hire a teacher for the morning. And so in the morning, the grade threes and the grade fours will be separate, and they'll be able to work on their core subjects, and then we'll bring them together in the afternoon. So it really varied. Um, I, I would, you know... Would we have preferred to have done it in the spring, obviously, but were we happy that we got the money in the fall as opposed to not getting it all? Absolutely. You know, I mean, um, you know, the individuals. One of the things that we did do in the spring, uh, the teachers that we had to release, we made it clear. If, if, I mean, clearly they were going to look out after themselves, and a couple of them did travel elsewhere to find jobs. But we told the people that we had to release that 
they were, are going to be our first priority, and we were going to find you know, substitute jobs for them, and then as people maybe went on maternity leave or became ill, we would ensure that they were placed. And in fact, we were able to play, we have been able to place now all of the people we had to release. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, final one, Balboda. Thank you very much, Ian. And Barry, I congratulate you on the achievement, some of the things you mentioned, what your schools are doing under your command. So thank you very much for doing that. And I have a question regarding uh, early childhood, but I have a couple of statements to make before that. The first one is that um, if education is expensive, ignorance is even more expensive. Number two, the education works as a lighthouse for the dark world. After having said that, the research shows that when children are exposed to early learning experiences, they connect more neurons in their brain and they move on into the higher education and more things. My question is, is Alberta government or school boards looking at uh, three-year-old early childhood development programs? Um, I did mention that uh, we do, uh, our district does have some, and we call them pre uh, pre-K uh, programs, and it is uh, for children between the ages of three and five. Uh, we just expanded. We have two additional programs this year. One is at um, Fleetwood Bodden School, and the other new program was at uh, Galbraith School. And uh, so we now have, I think, 12 pre-K programs in our schools. Uh, the advantages are immense, uh, as Bell mentioned and as I had indicated, that when you can identify um, issues at an early age, you're able to support that child much better. Um, the, um, the challenge, of course, is that if a student has a severe need, then there is some funding. But at this point, if they're sort of uh, mild or moderate or, or sort of typically average, um, the parents are paying to have their students in the preschool program. And so, you know, as a school jurisdiction, would we want, um, you know, to have the ability to provide additional programs? We certainly would. Um, would we want to have full-day kindergartens if uh, parents wanted to? I think we would certainly look at that. One of the challenges we face, of course, though, is space. I mean, we have some schools where we could implement a full-day kindergarten program with no issue. We have other schools where that would be an issue because we would not have the space to do so. But I, I really appreciate the questions. I, I Once again, thank you. I know we've gone a little bit over time. I hope that I've shared some ideas with you. My uh, business card is there. Uh, my contact information is on the screen. Please, if you have any questions at any time, now or in the future, feel free to get in touch with me. And if I can't answer it, I'll certainly find out someone that can. Thank you again.